This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Beginning in Jerusalem, remember, and then Judea, then Samaria, and then into the uttermost parts of the world, which would have been the fringes of the Roman Empire from their perspective. It's not an exhaustive account. There's a lot of things we wish he would have included. It is a selective account. A selective account of how the risen and ascended Jesus began to build his church just as he said he would, and he did so through his apostles, that's why it's called the Acts of the Apostles, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, he poured out, he poured out the missionary spirit, the Holy Spirit upon the church on that first day of Pentecost after his ascension, to, that they might be empowered to be witnesses uh, as they went out with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we entitled this series, The Spreading Word, because we're tracing how that word spread and spread, and praise God, it came down through the centuries even to us here. Now, one of the things we've seen throughout this whole book is opposition. Opposition and hostility and resistance against the Word of God. But, beloved, the gospel has always had to overcome hostility and opposition. And why is that? Because it is the light of truth. And the light of truth must come into this dark world and pierce the darkness, pierce the darkness of fallen human hearts who resist the truth of God. Paul says elsewhere that unbelievers have their minds blinded, their hearts blinded to the truth of the gospel, the light of the truth of the gospel. <clears throat> John chapter 3, verse 19 says, This is the judgment, that the light, the light, he was referring to Jesus at that moment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness more than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Why are their deeds evil? Because they have fallen human hearts, which suppress the truth. So there's always been hostility. And we traced it in the book of Acts. It began right there in Jerusalem with the, uh, with the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. <clears throat> and then in Antioch, there was Prejudice and envy led to hostility there. Lystra, uh, this ignorant paganism led to hostility there. Philippi, there was this reaction to a victory over the demonic realm. Remember when Paul cast the demon out of the slave girl? What happened? They end up being thrown in jail. And then there was Thessalonica. An unruly mob was stirred up once again by jealousy, the jealousy of religious leaders. Then we went to Athens. It was different there. What was it there? It was secular philosophers who, who had Paul interrogated in the Areopagus. What is this new teaching you're speaking about? Then in Corinth, what happened? A mob tried to use the Roman court system to silence Paul. And we're going to see in Ephesus next week. There's another riot. This on and on and on. We've been tracing it throughout the book of Acts. The gospel always has faced hostility. It has always had to press through darkness, but it does so with the power of God. You see, in each one of these cases, each one of these cities that we've followed, Luke records how the message of the Lord Jesus overcame each of those, of those uh, obstacles, how the gospel prevailed in each of those cities, and not without difficulty. Not without suffering, 
not without some persecution, not without pain. What did Paul say? He said, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Early on, he gave them a theology of suffering to understand that the gospel proceeds this way. This is how God intended it. We are following our Savior. What was his path? Suffering leads to glory, you see. No cross, no crown. And so we are reminded about these things. But still, beloved, despite these things, in the midst of these things, what happened in each of those cities? There was fruit. The gospel overcame. In each case, there was fruit. <clears throat> and I think this really should bring you all great encouragement this morning. Be encouraged. <laughs> Be encouraged. The light is greater than the darkness. The light can overcome the darkness. And I understand that it feels like in our culture, in our time, there's an increasing hostility growing and brewing against the truth. I understand that. You understand that in a time of pluralism, when everyone makes up their own mind, the exclusive claims of Jesus, Scott prayed, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You understand how that sounds? It sounds intolerant. And when you say it, they won't tolerate you, you see. That's the kind of time that we live in. There's no doubt that there's going to be hostility against the gospel. Many of you have been focusing on, on idols, idols of the heart. What does the gospel of Jesus Christ do? It reveals them to be what they are, false gods, the false gods of our time. There's going to be hostility against that. And the gospel also leads to what? Leads to a life of sanctification, a life of purity, a, a, a life of of purity in our sexuality. And of course, there's going to be opposition to that when we're in the middle of a sexual revolution. So we are not surprised. We're not surprised that the gospel um, is facing more hostility, but take heart. What did Jesus say? In the world you have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so I want you to be encouraged as you consider this this morning. This brings us now to Acts 19 to the great ancient city of Ephesus, one of the most largest and significant cities in the Roman Empire. I'll say more about it next week, but I'll tell you right now, it was a city of about 200,000 people. And what I want you to understand for today is that it was a city noted, a city famous for the magic arts, the occult. That will come up here in just a few minutes. It was especially known for its massive temple to Artemis or Diana. Let me say it again. Ephesus, ancient Ephesus, was profoundly influenced by occultic practices and magic and so forth. And what our text shows us this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 20. Our text shows us how the word of the Lord, how the gospel overcame opposition and pierced the spiritual darkness of this major pagan stronghold. And it did so, beloved, with life-changing power. Life-transforming power. It didn't just eek by, so to speak. It pierced the darkness. It came with the power of God, and it led to a revival in this very young church of maybe two or three years old. I want to point that out. So this text, again, is another example of a power encounter in the book of Acts, an encounter between the power of the kingdom of God and the power of the kingdom of darkness. And verse 20, our last verse, our capstone verse says it all. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail, prevail mightily, you see, 
That's the capstone. That's one of those great transition verses in the book of Acts. Now, chapter 19 has three primary scenes, and we're going to concern ourselves with the first two, okay? The first scene is this kind of strange encounter with these disciples of John the Baptist, and then the second scene is this another strange uh, account of traveling Jewish exorcists who try to exorcise a demon in the name of Jesus whom they don't know. And then the last scene is this trade union riot that comes up in Ephesus and that ends up dragging Paul once again in the middle of trouble. <clears throat> but he was used to that, right? So those are the three main scenes. So this morning, verses 1 through 20, these first two obstacles. What we're going to see is how the word of the Lord how the word of the gospel of the Lord Jesus overcame the first obstacle, a deficient understanding of theology, uh, of the gospel, and then secondly, how it overcame what I'm calling superstitious syncretism. That sounds like big words. I'll explain them when we get there. Either one of those will keep you out of the kingdom of God. A deficient understanding of the gospel or an attempt to syncretize Jesus with other things that you believe, you see. It's important you understand these. Either one of these, if you embrace them, will keep you out of the kingdom of light. Let's see, first of all, then, verses 1 through 10. Let me read those. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, at Corinth, we met him back in November, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Now, he had passed through Ephesus before. He didn't stay long. He said, Lord willing, I'll be back. And now he's back. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Well, into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, Well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is, Jesus now, on hearing this, and there's no doubt, he told them more, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and, began, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he, that's Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn, that is, hard-hearted, and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's a way referring to the faith, the Christian faith, evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Now this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So <clears throat> the first thing, that the word of the first obstacle that the word of God overcomes here is this obstacle of a deficient understanding. Notice he says he came upon some disciples when he arrived at Ephesus. Now, up to this point, when you read Luke or you read the book of Acts, disciples refers to what? Christians. Normally, that's how we would understand it. But there's, there's something going on in between the lines here that Luke doesn't record that, that triggered a thought in Paul's mind. I, he, I don't know that he's sure they're Christians. We don't know what happened, but something leads Paul to ask these two leading questions. The first question is, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? 
Interesting question for people who are called disciples. Now, I want to point something out here this, without getting into big details, but the grammar here, the syntax is important. That, that word believed is it's a participle and it expresses uh, an action that is simultaneous with the main verb, which is received. So in other words, Paul is talking about the same event. In his mind, he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? Why? Because you're supposed to receive the Holy Spirit when you believe. That's, that's the norm. That's how Paul is saying it. And that's how he understands it. And we've said this throughout the book of Acts. Beloved, being a Christian, being a born-again new creature in Christ Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit is one and the same reality. Later Paul would write, <clears throat> later Paul would write to the Roman church, remember that, Romans chapter 8, verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. <laughs> if you don't have him, then you don't belong to him. Did they have him? No. Did they belong to him? No. I mean, that's just the, simply the logic of it. In 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. You know what? He doesn't mean you can't just say those words, but you can't say it as an expression of your faith. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, let me ask you this, verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit or the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? You see, when do you receive the Spirit? Hearing with faith. And then to this very same church in Ephesus, Paul would later write, not too, much, too many years later, Ephesians chapter 1, you know this verse. He says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, what is that? The gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the spirit of promise, the down payment, the pledge of God. So Paul sees something in the behavior of these men. Something that leads them to say, did you, did you receive the Holy Spirit? <laughs> When you believe, I mean, your disciples, and they say, well, we haven't, their, their, their response is pretty odd, isn't it? Well, we haven't even heard that there, there is a Holy Spirit. I, commentators have a field day with this. I think there's probably some hyperbole here. If they were a exaggeration, in other words, if they're following John the Baptist, one would imagine that they would have heard John say, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, doubtful as being Jews that they wouldn't understand if they believed in what John the Baptist was saying, <clears throat> that there was a spirit promised in Ezekiel and so forth. So probably what we're to understand, what Luke wants us to understand is what they were saying was not that they've never heard that a spirit of God exists, but that what was said about the spirit ever came about, <laughs> that it was ever fulfilled, you see, that the promise was fulfilled and you say, well, how would that have happened to them? Well, we don't know, but it's easy to imagine it. I mean, they're in Ephesus. They're not in Jerusalem. Maybe they went and heard John the Baptist preaching, and they were baptized, and then they left Jerusalem. They left Jerusalem before Jesus came into his public ministry. They, came in, they went to Ephesus, and they never heard. They never heard what? 
that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah, that Jesus of Nazareth is the one John was talking about, that Jesus of Nazareth was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and that the people began to learn that the Messiah's path to glory was first through suffering and crucifixion, and that he took the iniquity of the people upon himself, but he was raised the third day in glory and power and appeared to the disciples, and then he was ascended and is seated at the right hand of God. They heard none of this. <laughs> they heard none of this, you see. They just heard John the Baptist preach what he had said up to that point. We might call them, you might even venture as go as far as this, uh, that, that they were old covenant believers. In other words, they agreed that there was a Messiah coming. They responded to, to John the Baptist, the last of the old testament prophets but that's as far as it went but this is now the time what this is now the time of the gospel there's no other name under heaven now by which we can be saved apart from the name of the lord jesus so they had what they had a deficient understanding of the core message of the bible that god saves through messiah's suffering and resurrection and that messiah is Jesus of Nazareth. They had a deficient understanding. Uh, I, their problem was not false belief. Their problem was incomplete belief or incomplete understanding, you see. And they lacked <clears throat> the entirety of what you and I call the full, the full gospel. And so this leads Paul to ask a second question. And as I read it and I reflected on it, I thought to myself, would that have been my second question? When he says, first of all, he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say, no, we didn't understand that, that, that the Holy Spirit even was fulfilled. Would your next question be, well, then what were you baptized into? Not mine. Mine would be something like, well, then what did you hear? Or could you explain the gospel to me? But he says, well, then what and to what were you baptized? And you, you know why we don't think like that? Because remember, in the book of Acts, there's, no idea, there's just no notion, no concept of a genuine Christian who has not expressed the full package, faith, repentance, baptism in water, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those four components, it's always been a package deal. Sometimes it's even shorthand. They leave out some of the words, like Peter didn't say believe. He said repent and be baptized. What's he talking about? The whole package, you see. And for us, historically, Baptism can be separated for a long time, and we don't see it the way they see it. And so Paul asks, well, then into what were you baptized? What kind of, what kind of expression of faith did you have? And he, they said, into the baptism of John. <clears throat> and what was the baptism of John the Baptist? It was not Christian baptism. It was pre-Christian baptism. It involved water, but what kind of a baptism was it? A baptism of repentance. What's that mean? It was a baptism among Jews saying that they recognized that the Messiah was coming and they needed to prepare their hearts, prepare the way, make the way level for the coming of Messiah. They needed to acknowledge their need to turn from sin as the, uh, as the Messiah came closer and closer. But Paul says to them, that was then and this is now, you see. He explained to them that about Jesus and when he explained about Jesus, and I'm sure he said a lot more than what Luke records here, right? There's no doubt Paul went into explaining the fullness of the gospel and the resurrection and the ascension and the, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when they, they finished hearing Paul preach, 
Then he baptizes them. He says here, into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a little aside here, a little footnote here, because this is one of those verses that's used by oneness Pentecostals, the Jesus-only movement, because it says here he was baptized, they baptized them into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they say, well, that's it. That's the true baptism. There's only one God. It's Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Spirit, and so forth. Um, but this is not a formula. I'm not going to go into this very much. This is not a baptismal formula. Matthew 28, 19 and following is, you are to be baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. What is Luke showing us here is that the contrast between the baptism of John and now the baptism in the name of Jesus. That's it. This is not some formula that somehow contradicts or supersedes Matthew 28. So that was just a footnote, but it's important because some of you have come from those backgrounds or you heard of them, see. So what happens next? After he baptizes them, he lays hands on them. And what, do we, and what takes place? <clears throat> Another mini Pentecost, right? We might call it the Ephesian Pentecost. What happens? The Spirit descends upon them, and once again, they, they, they demonstrate these powerful signs as on the day of Pentecost, as with the Samaritans, as with Cornelius and the Gentiles, and they begin speaking in tongues, it says there, and, and prophesying. And so this is all done as a result of Paul's laying on his hands after they have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, another footnote, because this is another text. Yet another text that gets abused. It's taken out of his context, which is just what? A description, not a prescription, right? Throughout the book of Acts, Luke is describing, not necessarily prescribing, everything that is taking place. And so this has become a proof text for the second blessing, which is the, a baptism of the Holy Spirit apart from your conversion. Uh, a second blessing that is available that not everyone has until someone like Paul lays hands on you and then you emerge uh, speaking in tongues and, and prophesying. But once again, what is happening here is not a, a, a doctrinal explanation of the individual experience of every conversion. That's not what he's talking about here. He's just telling us what happened. What happened was the same thing that happened on that moment uh, in, in uh, Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost and later, you see. What is, why is he telling us this? Because it's not the norm. <laughs> it's, it's unusual. This is the fourth and last time it's going to be recorded like this in the book of Acts. What is the norm? The norm is verse 2. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? You see, that's the norm. This is something that is unique. And so what is happening here, what is happening in these mini Pentecosts, if you remember, if we call them that, is that God, each time that he delayed the gifting of the Spirit, it came like that with a, a baptism of power of the Spirit resulting in these same signs, which were what? Speaking in foreign uh, tongues unknown to you before and, uh, and prophesying that each time that this happened, this was a sign of God's approval of this group of people belonging equally now to the one new people of God, the new covenant people of the Holy Spirit, you see. What happened to the Jews first, it's understandable. The promise was made to them, Acts 2, day of Pentecost. But then what? Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans. Remember? Yes, 
the hated half-breed Samaritans. Yes, they, they received God's approval, just like the Jews, by faith. And so the very same two signs take place, affirming that they belong to the body. Then God stretches them further. Cornelius, the Gentiles. Yes, what did Peter say? I guess even the Gentiles get the Holy Spirit. You know, and he's like he's walking around. <laughs> I got to rethink my Old Testament, you know. That's what happened with Peter. That's how hard it was for them, you see. And now the same thing is happening with this unique group of people who are disciples of John the Baptist, who are old covenant believers still lingering around, who need to understand that that age is over. You need to move from Judaism to Christianity. You need to leave, move from the old covenant to the new covenant. And you know what? One of the early church fathers, Clement, in some of his writings records that there were several groups uh, of heretical teachings uh, in that first century, uh, and they called themselves disciples of John the Baptist. You see. It could be that as Luke's writing, he's trying to even sort of fence that out and help anyone understand that you need to move from Judaism to Christianity because this is the age of fulfillment. This is the time of the gospel. There's no other name under heaven, you see, by which we may be saved. And so what is the obstacle? A deficient understanding, an incomplete grasp of the truth, the saving message of the gospel. And how is it overcome? It's overcome with the teaching, the accurate teaching of the full gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. First, Paul did it with the 12. Then verses 8 through 10 tell us that he went into the synagogue, which was his practice, remember. They gave him three months here. That's better than a lot of other places, right? So they gave him the pulpit for three months. And during those three months, you can imagine he had those new disciples he had with him. He spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now, those verbs we've seen before, that he was persuading, he, there, was, there was a passion. Uh, he was appealing to their logic. He was appealing to their hearts. And we've seen that he has done this repeatedly. And so he is preaching Christ with all his heart and passion, appealing to their thinking, their minds, and their hearts, their emotions regarding the Messiah. They give him three months doing this. This time, Luke says, the focus of his teaching was the kingdom of God. He hasn't said that much, but you understand why he would say that. And then what happens? There's people whose hearts are just hard, and they resist. They start speaking evil of the way that is the, the Christian faith. And so what does Paul do? Does he stop teaching? No. He protects the new disciples, these young, impressionable disciples. He pulls them out and takes them with him to another place where he can continue discipling them, you see. We're not called to seek persecution, okay? We're not called to say, okay, you want to shut me up? Kill me. He pulls out, okay? He leaves, and he, what's he do? He protects the young believers. These, at the most, they've been in the Lord two or three years at the most. He pulls them out, and he teaches them in the hall of Tyrannus. It's interesting. It was probably a, the hall of a, of a philosopher. You know, uh, Tyrannus literally means tyrant. So we can't imagine a parent naming their child tyrant, but... I mean, you at least you maybe need a little bit of time to know, and then uh, let's call him tyrant, you know. But 
So, so I mentioned that because it's curious that some scholars say they think basically this was his nickname given to him by his students, right? The Hall of the Tyrant. And so probably what Paul did is during the heat of the day, because Tyrannus would be teaching in the morning hours when it was cool, and Paul might have been working with his tent making at those same hours. The middle of the day, 11 to 4 p.m. when the heat was on, we were talking about sweating and preaching, uh, he, was, he, was, he was teaching them, and it says there he did so for two years. How is the obstacle of a deficient, incomplete understanding of the saving truth of Jesus Christ overcome by steady, consistent Biblical exposition and teaching over and over and over and over. Two years, I can imagine, or put it this way, I can't imagine that Paul never repeated himself. (laughs) In those two years, he was going back over things again, laying that mortar, putting that block on. Someone takes it off. He puts the mortar back, lays the block back on. That's what it's like, isn't it? It's layer after layer, and that's what happened there. And beloved, that's why we have... What we have here with our discipleship ministry, two years, it's layer upon layer. Some of you come back years later again. You don't cap it all the first time. That's why there's community groups where you discuss the teachings and the Bible or the sermon, and that's why there's Sunday school. That's why there's Christian education. That's why we have body life conferences like we had the, the last few days. It's what? It is you overcoming deficient understanding by renewing the mind, Romans 12, be being transformed by the renewing of your mind with what? The Word of God, the truth of the gospel, teaching, teaching the Word over and over. Now, I think another thing that Luke does for us here, by placing the, the accounts where he places them, is he's giving us, a, he's showing his readers, Theophilus and us, that there can be degrees of misunderstanding. You see, he follows the account of Apollos, and it's also connected to baptism of John. I know we haven't heard about Apollos since November 28th, but just think back here with me. What was Apollos' deficiency? Well, look up at 1825. This man was competent in the Scriptures. Verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. It's a reference to, to, to the Lord Jesus, I believe. And being fervent in spirit, we talked about that could be a reference to the Holy Spirit. He spoke and taught accurately, precisely the things concerning whom? Jesus. So was he just talking about some shadowy Messiah that may come? No. He was speaking about whom? About Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So here's the contrast. <clears throat> there are different kinds and different degrees of misunderstanding. Apollos was in the faith. He understood about Jesus. He misunderstood the ordinance of baptism. He didn't understand Christian baptism. Can you be saved and misunderstand baptism? Yeah, you can say something. Can you be saved and be, yes. Can you be saved and misunderstand the doctrines of the end times? Yes. No no's out there. Okay, good. Can you be, can you be, you follow where I'm going with this, right? There are a whole lot of secondary things that you and I won't understand. We're still understanding. We're still growing. But it won't keep us out of the kingdom of God, you see. Now, that was different with these 12, right? They also uh, only understood the baptism of John the Baptist, just like uh, Apollos. However, they did not know about Jesus, you see. And they were missing the key piece, you see. The key piece. And beloved, I would say, 
There's a lot of people like that <laughs> that attend churches and attend churches like ours, right? People wandering around with a chunk of the Bible here, a piece of the Bible there. A verse I, I learned in Sunday school when I was nine years old, you quote that, and something you got, you picked up in youth ministry, and a, th- a thought here, a, a, a truth there, but you're missing what? You don't know Jesus. You aren't in Christ yourself. You know about Jesus. You've heard things, but you're not there. You're missing the main piece, what it's all about. You can end up being like those Pharisees we talked about in John chapter 5, 39, right? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, meaning by the way you master them. And what do they do? Memorize whole books. You think that in that you have eternal life, but it's these, these that speak of me. But you won't come to me. You won't come to me that you might have eternal life, you see. And I fear there's people like that in a lot of uh, evangelical churches. I know there's some of us, there has to be some of you here in this congregation who are like that. It's sad, and may God awaken you to it. Uh, some time ago, reading Alistair Begg on this section here, he calls them the 12 almost Christians. <laughs> well, that works in horseshoes, right? That's the saying. <laughs> Close. Close is good in horseshoes, and, but it's not good when it comes to the kingdom. When not good when it comes to salvation. What did Jesus say to that one man in the Gospel of Mark? You're not far from the kingdom of God, but you're not in it. <laughs> you're not in it. Is that you? Could that be you? You have a partial understanding, you see. And you're clinging to your own sort of religion you create in your mind, which are these things I've learned, and I kind of keep them here, and, but you're not in the faith. I, throughout the years, here and there, I've had conversations with people who, who, who took offense when the preaching got into their kitchen, right? When it pressed in, and they would come later and say, that's not my God, or... That's not the Jesus I believe. And you want to say, I, I understand that, but your God is, and your Jesus is not this one, you see. He's, he's the God of your imagination. He fits cozily in your mind, and he serves you, and you, you put him in your pocket. But this God, who is he? He's Lord. <laughs> he's the living God. He's risen from the dead, you see. And so, there, there, is that you? Could that be you? You say, well, how do I know? Well, let me ask you the question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? (laughs) See, that's part of it. Has your life been impacted at all by faith in Jesus? Or is it simply something you mentally say, well, I'm not going to disagree with my folks about this. I'm a Christian. I'm not a Buddhist, you know. So it makes me a Christian, right? I mean, what is it, beloved, with you? Are you an almost Christian? Or have you come to a full faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. When you receive Him, you receive the Holy Spirit. And when you receive the Holy Spirit of promise, there's going to be a transformation taking place. It won't be immediate in the sense that you abandon all all your habits and your sins, but the Holy Spirit comes into a person's conscience and awakens that conscience, awakens the conscience to the fact that there is a God, there is accountability. He doesn't like that anymore. That's what you used to do. You need to stop that. I'm here to help you. Let's press on. He loves you. You're justified, but you need to grow in your sanctification. Now, that's, that's just the reality. Is the fruit of the Spirit evident any time in your life? What is that? 
Well, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. Is any of that there, you see? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He comes to convict of sin and righteousness, we're told. Spurgeon once said this. He said, give a man an electric shock, and I warrant you, he will know it. (laughs) And then he goes on, he goes on and says, but if he has the Holy Ghost, he'll know it even more. Why? Because he's not just some shock experience. He is not some momentary lightning bolt. Who is he? He is the living spirit of Jesus indwelling you and influencing you over time. So don't misunderstand me. No one in this story sought the Holy Spirit. Whom did they seek? Jesus. He gives the Holy Spirit. Don't look for him. Don't look for the Spirit. If you're not sure, look to Christ. Be serious about coming to faith in him. Ask yourself. Paul says elsewhere, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. So the first obstacle that the Word of God overcomes was what? Is this deficient understanding. The second one is is phenomenal. It is what I'm calling superstitious syncretism. You know that superstition is a belief that kind of arises out of ignorance and you try and uh, you know you try and associate different sources of things that are happening when you don't really know. And then syncretism is the fusion of different beliefs, you know. And what's happening here is the superstition in Ephesus results in these people trying to fuse Jesus with their own confusing understandings and God overcomes that so let's read it now back to the text let's read verses 11 to the end there and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that watch this even handkerchiefs or aprons this was what's for sweat because he was working in the heat of the day either handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them And the evil spirits came out of them. Uh, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. Boy, that's an oxymoron, isn't it? That's weird. These weren't good Jews, okay? Itinerant, they were traveling. Jewish, well, they had roots in Judaism. Exorcists, you can't do that if you're a Jew. Okay. Itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook, here's their syncretism, they they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. There's their superstition. They don't know him, but he's like a little genie's lamp. They tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Now, we don't Scholars don't think he was a high priest. Um, And what were their sons, his sons doing there? He was probably of the priestly family. He might have been retired, but again, this is not high priestly ministry, okay? (laughs) Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, and I love God's sense of humor, don't you? And and, and Luke, too. I think Luke says, I'm putting that one in there. (laughs) I am going to put that one. Paul's, oh, no, 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 yes, yes, yes. But the evil spirit answered them saying, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who the devil are you? (laughs) And this is the devil saying this, right? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. The story was just shared. 
both Jews and Greeks, everyone was talking about it. And what happened? Fear, awe, right? Fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That verb means to honor, to be magnified. Also, and when you see also, this is a separate thing that happened. So the first thing is happened to the populace, right? Jews and Greeks everywhere were blown away by this. And there was a sense of awe. But also, something else happened. Many of those who were now believers, these are already Christians, came. That is, they came forward. What were they doing? Confessing and divulging their practices. Wow. And a number, a number of those who had practiced magic arts. Remember, this was big in Ephesus. They brought their books together. These would be scrolls. Expensive scrolls. You know, making books in the ancient world wasn't like today. You know, it cost money. They brought these books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Several things about this. First of all, beloved, God is the one who is exerting divine powers of miracles, right? Notice what he says there. God was doing these extraordinary miracles. Luke is a master of understatement. Aren't miracles extraordinary? <laughs> so what would an ordinary miracle be? Like walking on water, raising the dead? But he says here, literally in the original language, he says, not unordinary, no ordinary, dunamis, no ordinary expressions of power were being done by God through Paul. Now Paul isn't, he isn't selling handkerchiefs. He isn't saying, send 25 bucks and I'll send you the holy handkerchief. What's happening? Notice how Luke, the way Luke records this, Paul is so removed from all this. People are taking pieces of cloth of his and they're putting them on sick people. They're being healed. They're putting on demon-possessed people and the demons are being exercised out of them. This is what part of what this is showing us, what Luke's showing us in his account because in chapter 243 and chapter 14, 13, 15, 12, he says that signs and wonders were being done at the hands of the apostles, right, by God. He's showing us Paul is one of them too. Paul, God was working through Paul. Just as he's connecting a line here, just as the woman was healed who reached out to just touch Jesus' robe, and then people were healed by the shadow of Peter, now people are healed by the cloth, the clothing, the handkerchiefs of Paul. So Luke's showing a continuity here. What, what are miracles? They are signs. What are these signs of? They are a sign of affirmation, accreditation, that these men truly are speaking my word, says the Lord. Paul referred to them as the signs of an apostle. And, and what does a sign do? A sign points to a higher reality, what were these signs pointing to? It was getting their attention. Listen to these men. Listen to what he says. It, signs and miracles draw people in, captivate their attention that they might hear the saving message of the gospel. That's it. The miracles themselves don't convert anyone. Remember what happened on one of the accounts that says that Jesus, after his resurrection, there are many disciples with him on the mount, and some didn't believe. You're like, he rose from the dead. <laughs> Hello? That's ah, a trick. It's mirrors. I don't know what's going on here. What is it? It's the human heart, you see. So miracles don't convert, but they do get your attention, don't they? These were extraordinary things, and it got the crowd's attention, no doubt about that, right? And to the uninformed mind, you know what this looked like? 
magic. Like this guy's magic, like that guy's magic. Remember, Ephesus was steeped in the occult, and like other cities we saw before, there were magicians, and by that, 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 that we're not talking card tricks. We're talking about people who, who recited incantations, and they had various spells, and they would uh, uh, cite omens, and they would promise you that they are controlling the unseen spiritual world and that will affect it for good for your good you know if you want your business to succeed come here you pay me and I'll recite one of our incantations we have found many scrolls like this and the Jews were looked at many Jews were seen to be experts in this area one of the reasons was because they knew the secret name of God that's what they were they were known for. And their Hebrew incantations sounded mystical. We found, there's, archaeologists have found papyri that refers to, to El, to the God of the Jews, and, and, and various incantation scrolls and so forth. And so, this stuff that's going on through Paul gets the attention of these so-called Jewish traveling exorcists, and they try and, and, and call upon the name of Jesus without knowing him. They're syncretizing his name, like, like as if he's a, a, a genie's uh, lamp that you just rub, like a talisman, you know, like just the, just the repetition of his name and mixing it in with their other ideas. Somehow this is going to invoke the power of God that we've seen going on over there, and this completely backfires, right? <laughs> Remember, the demon world is aware of Jesus, aware of God, James said, you believe in God? That's great. You know what? The demons do too. And they shudder. And when Jesus came on upon the demoniac, what did he say? What do we have to do with you, O son of God? Are you going to cast us out? You know, are you going to send us into the abyss? They know who Jesus is. They were aware of Paul. But who are these people here? And he overpowers them, all seven of them. Imagine that. They run out of the house naked and bleeding and I read somewhere that if you attend a fight and you're fully clothed, but when the fight's over, you're naked and bleeding and running, you lost, okay? So that should be obvious, right? They lost. It just, it reversed entirely. What did God do here? Notice Paul was not directly involved in this account. Notice it was God working these things. It was God causing his own power to be effectual because what, it, what happened next was the whole city of Ephesus was impacted by this manifestation of the spirit world that was real, okay? Now you're like, this is beyond our little, you know, uh, incantations for a nice birthday. What is this? What is this? Suddenly they were aware of what? The reality of the spiritual realm in honesty. The reality that there's a God. And they, the fear of God was entered their hearts. They just became encaptured by. And then Christians, notice what it says there. Christ, many of those who are now believers came. Th that's in the perfect tense, meaning they had believed in the past, and they're still believers. These are Christians he's talking about. Now, albeit they're young Christians, right? We don't know, is this the second year, third year, Paul's here, whatever, but... They're young, but they come forward. They're impacted as well. And this is a revival. Many of those who were believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts. They grew up in this city, right? They were still involved in that stuff. 
They still had it in their closet, you know. Once in a while, they're just going to pull out that Ouija board, you know. They had all this stuff, but it got to them, you see. This is an outpouring of the manifestation of the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is a sign of a revival. They didn't try and sell their scrolls so that they can use the money. They knew that would trip up somebody else. They burned them. Fifty shekels or drachmas. A drachma was a day's wage. And you, you can read it's either tens of thousands of dollars or millions, depending on whether how pure the silver was and so forth. But put it this way, it was costly. It was a costly thing to do for them at that time. And that's exactly what these people did. Jesus, and, and what God demonstrated was several things. One, there is a spiritual realm. Two, there is power in the name of Jesus, but he cannot be manipulated. He is not some talisman. You can't syncretize Jesus into any other sets of beliefs that you have. He's the living God. He's the Lord of glory, you see. He will not be used. He will not be manipulated. When I preach in Latin America and a meeting with some of the pastors down there, some of you know, there is a lot of syncretism in Latin America of of the Roman Catholic saints and, uh, and voodoo and, and Pentecostalism. Santeria is just this mixed mesh of ideas, and Jesus is in there. And you always have to clarify when you start talking. They say, oh, yeah, Jesus. Sí, sí, yo creo en Jesús. Muy bien. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, but is it this Jesus? <laughs> Can you tell me about him, you see? And so God overcomes this confused um, uh, superstitious syncretism in their minds and hearts by a demonstration of his power. And for Christians who are already believers, it is a revival, a renewal. And we learn secondly that you can't drive out the demons of your life, to use it metaphorically, you can't drive out any problems of the church or in your personal walk apart from the power of Jesus. The name of Jesus isn't just some genie. You need to know him. And I, I fear once again that with some of you, you would say something like, well, yeah, I believe in the genus, Jesus that Tony preaches. By the name of the Jesus my parents talk about, you see. By the name of the Jesus who they talk about in Sunday school. But see, that's different than are you in Christ? Do you know Christ? Ephesians 1, Paul says that we have been blessed in Christ, in Him, we've been blessed with all the blessings in the heavenlies. And to the Colossian church, he says that in Him, in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him, if you are in Him, you've been made complete. You see, But you have to be in Him. You can't speak about the Jesus that Tony talks about. He has to be the Christ in your heart. And he shows us when he turns this table, his own power to bring about revival. Revival is just a glorious thing. I'd like to come back to this sometime. I won't today. Just to say, this is one of the true marks of a revival when believing Christians uh, uh, experience a mass repentance. You know, what is, what is, what is, revi what is revival? Well, what, is, what, is, what happens to an individual when, when they come to faith? They repent and they believe, right? Revival is when that happens on a massive scale simultaneously by the grace of God. Uh, and it happens in believers that they repent again of things that they've been keeping, keeping hidden in their heart. 
Uh, years ago, Richard Roberts wrote a book on revival called Aptly Revival. And he gives all these great marks. He says, great marks of a revival. I'm not going to go through a whole list. But we'll come back to this. But let me hear these at least. He says, one mark of a genuine revival is that an intense spirit of conviction is known and felt by the group. Sins long ago forgotten will be dealt with seriously. Confession of sin will become the order of the day. And fourthly, long-standing habits, talking about bad habits, right, wrong habits, are broken. And that's what happened here. Let me ask you, is your heart clinging to something, even today, that is not compatible with Jesus? And you've known it for some time? You've thought it over the years? You felt it this weekend when you came to hear about the idols of the heart? Is anything like that? Is anything clinging to your heart that keeps you from focusing on Christ and his glory? What do you do with it? Don't negotiate it. Burn it. Right? Burn it. There comes times when you have to do what uh, Paul says. Flee! Flee! Youthful lust. Burn it. Don't negotiate. Don't arrange. Don't talk about making a plan. What does Jesus say? If your right hand offends you, cut it off. Remember, it's the trigger that trips you. If that, if that is what trips you into sin, you get rid of it. If you've been a Christian here and you've been at this church some 10 years or so, you may have heard this illustration, and I've used it one or once or twice, but early on in my faith, me and my friends were coming to Christ together in our, in our band, uh, just coming out of high school, and you know, God was just doing things in our lives. It was like waves of things going on, and we were at our practice studio, and one of, one of the other brothers just confessed his absolute uh, uh, addiction. I, his, he didn't use the word, but just his, his being under the control and darkness of pornography. And, you know, back when we were kids, you didn't just click something on your phone, you know. You had to go somewhere, pretend to be an adult, buy a magazine, or do something like that, you know, or... And he takes me to his house, and he had underneath his bed, he pulls out a, a, a piece of luggage, and the luggage was filled with pornographic magazines. You know, we're 18, coming out of high school, or 19, coming to faith, and we, sa we said, what are we going to do? He says, we're going to just burn this stuff. So we went back to the, the band's studio, which was on one of the main streets in San Leandro, and we pulled out one of those 50-gallon barrels of, you know, uh, that was empty, and we threw all this pornography in there, and we threw some gasoline in there, and we went, you know, and this flame went up, and we're right across the street from an apartment complex, you know. And, and, and there's people looking out the window, and there's this, you know, and there's these two guys going, yeah, praise the Lord. And, this, and of course, you know, you guessed it, what happened? The fire engines pull up, and this thing's just going. We just let it go. We said, let it go, let it go. And the fireman comes out, and they all come talking to us, and, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you idiots thinking? What are you doing? And we shared our testimony of Christ, and they sat there in a circle and watched it burn with us, you see. That's a mini revival. But revivals begin how? with you. Don't look around and say, well, I wish, I wish, or if only they got revived. <laughs> you know, right, it's, 
And it starts right here with you. Are you clinging to anything, beloved? Don't negotiate it. He's given you the grace of the Holy Spirit to repent. Repent and rid yourself of it today. So God pours out his power. He overcomes this superstitious syncretism, not through, not through Paul's direct action, but how was the soil of revival prepared for those Christians? Same way. Paul taught them for three years. Two, three years. He had been discipling. See, the word of God is what tills the heart, tills the soil, and prepares that dry ground for what? The outpouring of God's grace and mercy. And that's the part you can I play. What did Paul do in this whole thing? And all this stuff about miracles, what did he do? He did one thing. He made disciples by teaching the word of God. That's what he was doing. And he was satisfied with that. What have we seen? We've seen that there is spiritual darkness in this world, and you and I are feeling more of it today. How's that sound? The song goes, do you feel? What's the lyrics, Mike? Do you feel the world, the darkness yeah, encroaching? Yes, we do. That's what's happening. But the word of God will pierce through the darkness. Do not, beloved, do not discount the power of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Let's pray. Thank you, our Father.